afternoon, Jamie. Welcome to TWIST, This Week in Sustainability. My name is Felicia Etzcorn. I'm at Virginia Tech. Good afternoon, Felicia. I am Jamie Ferguson, and I am uh, based in Emory, Virginia at Emory and Henry College, and I'm currently at home in Alabama. Today we're going to talk about lead. Lead is used in a number of different places in our life. So we'll be talking about lead in gasoline and its correlation with violence. We'll talk about lead in batteries, car batteries. There's still lead in pipes. So this is gonna be a big one. The EPA just changed its rules. Jamie's gonna talk about that. And then we're gonna talk about um, lead in car paint and uh, a green chemistry substitute for lead in car paint and how that came about. So, I don't know, do you wanna, we could just, let me, let me tell you a little bit of the history of lead in gasoline. So in the 60s, they invented tetraethyl lead. So it has four, that's the tetra part, four ethyl groups, which are two carbon um, greasy chains attached to lead. And this was an anti-knock additive to make engines run smoother. So it was a very heavy, but as you burn the gasoline, the lead would get into the air. And so basically the whole time I was growing up, the lead levels in air were going up. And then in the mid seventies, when I was maybe in high school, they were coming down again um, because they figured out that it was a bad thing. Or maybe it wasn't till the eighties, but basically there was a time period when kids were growing up with breathing a lot of lead in the air and it was bad. Um, because lead is a neurotoxin and it's been shown to decrease, like they can correlate blood lead levels, BLLs, blood lead, blood lead levels, that's hard to say, um, with violence and with a drop in IQ. And you know, the, the correlation with violence is really difficult because there are other confounding factors like poverty and the, the urban environments where the highest lead levels are, are also where there's a lot of poverty. So there, there's environmental justice issues going on with this, but we do know that lead is a neurotoxin. It would make sense mechanistically that it could have an effect on development, intellectual de development. Say one more thing about the, um, the correlation of lead in gasoline. As it was used more and more, the rate of violence in the United States went up and up. And, and then when they quit using lead in gasoline, it started coming down again. The other thing though that happened 
was that abortion became legal. And there's also a strong correlation with legal abortions and a drop in violence. So they think it's two factors. The drop in violence since the 70s is correlated both with the drop in the use of lead and gasoline and with the legalization of abortion. How's that? <laughs> That's, you know, there's a chemical cause and a sociological cause. Um, but anyway, that, that's, I just wanted to bring that up because this correlation of lead with violence makes some sense epidemiologically, physiologically, from the standpoint that it's a neurotoxin and so on. We really need to stop using lead. And, and then when they did stop using lead, Basically, what they were using as a, an anti-knock ingredient for gasoline was ethanol. And it's, you know, bio-based ethanol. So that's, you know, one of the early successes for green chemistry. You're substituting highly toxic lead for, you know, fairly benign ethanol, you know, corn-based ethanol sugarcane based in Brazil. So we're, we have been working on getting rid of lead in, in gasoline. I think as recently as 2005, they were still allowed to use tetraethyl lead in what's called avgas, aviation gas, which they use for, I think for small planes, small plane engines, need a very special fuel and they didn't have a substitute. I don't know if they do now. So there may still be lead in abgas. Um, let's see, what else? Lead in batteries. We talked a couple, several episodes ago, we talked with Lou Madsen about battery um, lead and how because lead is so easily melted, it's super easy to recycle it. And so it, it's a pretty efficient system they have for recovering the lead. He, he, I think he said 99% of the lead was recovered from car batteries and reused. So that's, that's not bad. If you're in a car accident, yeah, you might spill the sulfuric acid out of the battery, but the lead is probably still in there and goes to the, you know, junkyard and then they they can send the battery back to have the lead recycled. So here's I, a few more sources of lead uh, from a, a review in uh, Canadian Family Physician, I believe is what this journal is, a 2010 review. Let's, let me make sure that that is the name of the journal. Can Fam Physician. It's got to be Canadian. Okay. Let's see here. So lead-based paint. Yep. Houses built before 1978. Uh, when you're doing renovations, uh, of course, if you paint a house uh, with lead-based paint and then it rains on that house, then for the rest of the life of that house, you're thinking about the, uh, the lead in the soil around the house or the building. Um, industries also, highways, lead in food, 
So lead soldered pots, the fact that it's a, uh, you know, low melting metal means that it's used in a lot of soldering, um, stained glass windows, there's lead in the soldering for that, uh, pottery. So those are just some more examples. And they can be in toys and jewelry. I've, I've been worried about little toy soldiers that were made in China. Yep, um, yep. Crayons, jewelry, soft vinyl lunch boxes, candle wicks, huh? Candle wicks, huh? And synthetic turf dust. Synthetic uh, yeah, turf yeah. Dust. You want to you want to get candle wicks that don't have that stiffener of gray metal coming up the middle of them. Um, better hmm. to use, use fiber candle wicks. Um, mm -hmm. I think U.S. made candles don't have lead in them, but they can come from, yeah, because you're burning it and you're putting it into the air in your home. So that's a really bad thing and should not, you know, that that's one of the problems with all this global trade is we don't have as much control over environmental pollutants in our consumer products when they're not made in the US. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's why they can be cheaper because they just make it out of whatever they, whatever's cheapest. Um, and that's a bad thing. So, but then we get to the lead in pipes. So Jamie. Yeah, so everybody um, has probably heard about, um, you know, it was all over the news a couple of years ago, the Flint, Michigan story, you know, um, that has uh, energized general chemistry courses around the United States ever since, um, because it's a great way of teaching about something called a solubility product constant, or a KSP. And, uh, and a KSP is basically uh, anytime you've got two phases uh, in contact with each other, and that can be a liquid phase and a gas phase, like at the surface of, uh, of a glass of water, or it can be a liquid and a solid phase, like the water touching the glass. Um, those are different phases. And so anytime you've got two phases, there's an equilibrium of chemical in each phase. Any given chemical partitions itself between these two phases. There's no zero concentration of some chemical in in one phase, uh, if it has, if it's making contact, if it has the potential to be in that phase. And so stuff that is dissolved in water versus stuff that is precipitated out, that is a solid, not in the water. Um, there's an equilibrium of stuff between those phases. And a solubility product constant is if lead, which is a two plus ion, can form a solid crystal with, say, hydroxide, OH minus. And it takes two OH minuses to charge balance every lead two plus. So OH is oxygen and hydrogen. Oxygen. And it has, carries a negative charge to balance the lead. Right. And so and so the 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 at equilibrium the, the, you know, at time infinity equilibrium, there's going to be for any given temperature, a, a set number that is equal to the 
product of the concentration of that hydroxide and the concentration of the lead. Now for hydroxide, it'll be squared. There's some exponents involved, but it has to do with multiplying the concentrations of these chemical species. And so lead can form different kinds of solid salts. One is lead hydroxide, PB with two OHs. One is lead sulfate, just one sulfate ion for every one lead, a bunch of different salts. And each one of these salts has a different solubility product constant. Well, lead phosphate has a very, very small solubility product constant. That Which means low solubility. Low concentration. So if they dump a bunch of phosphate anion into the water, if the product of the phosphate and the lead to some number of exponents has to hit some number and your concentration of phosphate is very high, well, proportionally, your concentration of lead has to be very, very low. And that's what they do when they are, uh, when they are precipitating out the lead is they add a high concentration of some other salt that the ions will combine together. So they, so Flint used to treat its water. Water treatment facilities will uh, add different salts that puts uh, ions into the water, which then combine with, let's say lead ions to create uh, a, basically it, it, it becomes the crust on the inside of the pipe. If you were to open that pipe up and look at it, there's gonna be a deposit on the outside of the pipe. And, and so, um, you know, that's how they control it. They, they also, uh, that, that KSP, that solubility product constant, um, it, it also is sensitive to uh, the pH of the water. And so, for instance, um, if you know that, I mean, in general, acidic conditions corrodes metal basic conditions, not so much. And that's because metal ions are positively charged ions. Um, and so uh, if, if metal ions tended to be negative ions, then maybe alkaline water would tend to corrode. But, but, but uh, acidic water is what tends to corrode metals. And so uh, wastewater treatment facilities will also, or sorry, not wastewater treatment, water treatment facilities will also uh, add acid or base to control the pH of the water in their, in their pipes. And so both of those things um, were discontinued um, in an effort to, to get cheap um, in, in Flint. And these things happen in other places too. Those salts, those inputs cost money and, and so did the personnel. And, you know, so, so it was cutting corners in that way. But what it allowed to happen was for the lead in the pipes to leach into the water. Now how the lead would leach is that um, lead in a pipe, in a lead pipe that you would see, that's lead metal, that's lead zero. When lead is oxidized, when you take electrons away from, uh, from that lead zero. That's the metal form. That's that gray metal form of lead that makes the pipe a solid then it becomes lead two plus. And lead zero is not water soluble. Lead two plus is much more water soluble. And then when you oxidize it, you're, you're 
taking those electrons away, making it positively charged, which makes it soluble to a some extent, like you're talking about with the KSP. Right, right. Because like dissolves like, and water is partially charged as a solvent. And so it dissolves things that are charged very well, doesn't dissolve uncharged things very well. So that's what happened in Flint. Did you know that, that Mark um, Edwards, who's my colleague here at Virginia Tech, also discovered lead in pipes in Washington, D.C. And that was how Flint, the Flint activists found out about him. He got serious runaround from the water treatment plant people where they were avoiding him and they were not sharing data with him or not telling him about what they were doing. And he ended up getting records of blood lead levels in children from hospitals. Like they, they, um, what do they call that? Where they remove the identifying information from the records. Anonymize. Yeah, they anonymize the, the data and basically kind of gave him blood lead levels for children over a certain period of years. And he was able to figure out that, yeah, they had changed what they were doing to uh, treat the water, which was causing increased corrosion and causing the lead levels to increase in households. And it depends on the age of the household, but as late as I think 1990, a lot of the households, at least they use solder, yeah. um, lead, lead-based solder in the pipe running from the city mm-hmm. to the house. But a lot of those old, old houses have lead pipes running from the city lines to the house. And so it really, this treatment that you've been talking about is critical. It's really critical um, how they treat the water. Because the, the, the thing that pH will do is um, lead zero, the lead metal, gets oxidized by dissolved oxygen in the water and it becomes lead hydroxide. And the, and so even though, you know, uh, so, so the, I, I, and lead hydroxide has a very low KSP, a very, very small KSP. Um, and so that is the, that, that, that's the crust that forms, that would form on its own. If you did nothing, you could, you could, you know, not add any um, flocculants, I think is what they, no, maybe flocculants is something else. Anti-corrosion. Yeah. Anti-corrosive. Um, you know, you could add no phosphates at all and you would still with water, uh, you know, stand, water that... At neutral pH. There would be some very thin lo- layer of, th- of lead hydroxide on the outside. Uh, or, sorry, on the, on the inside. Inside and outside, really. Um, that, that's what's going to happen to some lead that's exposed to air. Um, but that KSP, you know, there's an equilibrium constant that that uh, nature obeys uh, that is related to the product multiplying together the concentration of lead and the concentration of hydroxide. Um, really, the concentration of hydroxide squared. But if you allow 
uh, the water to get more acidic, those acid ions are going to combine with the hydroxide, the H plus and the OH minus is going to combine, form water. So you're consuming the hydroxide or, or rather the acid in the water is consuming the hydroxide. And as it's doing that, if that hydroxide concentration goes down, then the lead concentration goes up because the two are going to balance each other out. It's lead concentration times hydroxide. Hydroxide gets smaller, that lead's going to get bigger to reach that same equilibrium constant. And so that's why it was important to, you know, to control the pH, which they stopped doing as well. So these are things that can happen anywhere that, uh, that you know, that all water has some pH. Uh, and so therefore, you know, anywhere that has lead in pipes can, you know, can have this happen. It wasn't anything specific to the Flint water or any additional. Oh, it can, it can definitely happen anywhere. And that's why people don't understand. This wasn't something that's only happening in Flint, Michigan, or in Washington, DC. This is all over the country. Do you want to go ahead and um, talk about the the new EPA rule and what what that actually is doing? There's a new rule submitted as of I think December twenty second, um, and the the rule change has been submitted from the EPA. Uh, there's still time for Joe Biden's administration to uh, make amendments to it. Um, if it stays in place as is, uh, it will be enacted in about three years. Um, and so, you know, some people are excited about these new rules because it's an update of the of the lead rules for water. Some people don't think it went far enough. So what does it actually do? According to its own fact sheet, that's called the LCR, which is lead and copper. Copper is also in this rule. So the LCR, lead, lead copper rule overview um, that EPA put out, um, it is going to better protect children. Uh, it is putting more onus on the uh, utilities themselves for testing. Uh, and it, um, it closes some loopholes uh, that, utilities could get out of having to replace lead pipes. Um, so, so how does it do that? Um, well, schools have to be tested first off. Um, so the old rule had no federal requirement for community water systems to test for lead uh, in school buildings. And community water systems, you just think of any, uh, any municipal water treatment facility in your community. So for us, it's I think it would be the Washington County Service Authority. So whatever is your whatever is your water provider. Now they have to test. Um, uh, they have to test for lead in schools. It changes the trigger level of what concentration triggers action. So it used to be I think 15 parts per billion, and it's been lowered to 10 parts per billion. Schools. What about the replacement of existing lines? That's a, a new thing. So I have it here. Um, the old rule 
So this is from ABC News. While the old rule theoretically included a 7% replacement rate, it was riddled with loopholes and off-ramps. We only saw 1% being replaced. With our new requirement of 3%, we'll see three times the replacement rate under the old rule. And this is a quote from Wheeler, um, EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler. So besides the testing, it also, they think they're gonna get three times as much replacement, but it sounds like they're going from 7% replacement rate to 3% replacement rate, but they're getting rid of all the loopholes and right. off ramps. So, and that that's a 7% replacement, 7% 7, 7 uh, of lead service lines every year when 10% of sampling results are above the, Oh, see, this is what's a little bit confusing. Um, under the new rule, so under the new rule, water systems will be required to fully replace at least 3% of lead service lines each year when 10% of sampling results are above 15 ppb parts per billion. The new rules, real 3% replacement rate, uh, they say is going to do more than the unmet 7% rate. So that's a little bit, uh, that that's where the debate is, you know, people are saying, well, this is, how is this an improvement? You're saying, we're gonna we're gonna solve our you know low enforcement uh, low implementation problem by just making the rules uh, more relaxed. But I don't think that's the only. I, I think you're right that the that it's the combination of let's let's make it an attainable uh, replacement. Yeah. That is not gonna totally break you know because I the Washington County Service Authority or name your local water treatment facility is not made of money and it costs a lot of money to replace these lines. Um, it costs somewhere between, I read somewhere between 150 and $300 per meter to replace, wow. um, to replace the lead lines. So, you know, replacing is going to be a long-term slow procedure. Yeah. There, there's another uh, solution to, to the not temp, not permanent solution, but the, an, another proposed solution is just zapping the lead pipes with electricity um, is a way of creating a more even coating of this deposit that would keep the lead from leaching. So there was a story in Scientific American last year that that uh, was called "Zapping Lead Pipes with Electricity Could Make Them Safer for Drinking Water," and they had a quote in there that that said, "Yeah, between 150 and 300 bucks per meter for replacing." And and so there's a lot of lead pipes under the ground. We don't really know for sure where they are. Uh, you know, the way to find them even is to test the water and see where there are problems. Yeah. So I do want to um, talk about the replacement. What are they going to replace it with? And it's most likely going to be a polymer. I don't know for sure. And sort of the gut reaction everybody has is, well, they must be using PVC, polyvinyl chloride. But the problem with PVC is the chlorine. 
you know, every, every third atom is a chlorine. And so that's a lot of chlorine in, in that plastic. It is made from the monomer vinyl chloride, which is extremely toxic to the workers in those manufacturing plants. And it has the potential for devastating accidents from those manufacturing plants. You know, vinyl chloride, I think it's a gas. Experimental boiling point of vinyl chloride is seven Fahrenheit minus 14 centigrades. Yes, it's a gas at room temperature. So PVC, you know, yes, it's very stable in the long run, um, but it's made from something that's not, not safe. And to avoid accidents, the thing is to not use hazardous things. So I'm, I'm not a fan of PVC. So 25 years ago, I had, I discovered that a lot of copper was leaching from my pipes in my house out in the country. And the way I discovered this was that there was a blue green sheen of mica-like stuff on my cat's bowl and she wouldn't drink it. She would not drink the, the water. So I actually create, I was in charge of creating a, a freshman chemistry lab. And so I got to do whatever I wanted. So I, I created a, a lab for the students to do on copper in household water. <laughs> I had many, many replicates of students measuring my household water copper content. And it was high by atomic absorption, which is how you measure these things. Quickly, what atomic absorption is and when it's used? Well, it's, it's, it's used um, for metal ions in solution, and it's a spectrometric measurement. So it uses light energy, and it measures the wavelength of each specific ion, so you can detect you know, copper versus lead, for example. So it's not, yeah, it's not burning the metal, but it's exciting the metal with high heat and it's... I think it's UV light. I think it's UV absorption. Sorry, UV absorption. So then my hot water heater, which was under the counter in the kitchen in the corner, and it it corroded and the water leaked all over and ruined my kitchen cabinets anyway. And all of the plumbing was behind those kitchen cabinets. And I was like, well, screw this. I'm, I need to replace these copper pipes with something else. And I didn't want to use PVC at the t I had already decided I didn't want PVC 25 years ago. And the plumber was great. He was like, well, there's this new pipe. It's made of polypropylene. Well, polypropylene is the number five recycled plastic that I buy yogurt in. Yogurt containers are made of polypropylene. No toxicity. I mean, propene is very flammable. So yes, there's still the hazard in polymerizing propene, but that's the case for any po polymer that's made from a petroleum product like, you know, a low molecular weight compound. Propene has three carbons 
And so it's a very low, it's, well, people use it for cooking out in the country, right? You have a propane tank. Well, it's not propene, but it's close. It's propane, a propane tank, and you burn it, right? So yes, it's flammable, but it's not toxic. Like it's, it's not going to, like, it's not toxic the way vinyl chloride is, but it's a good replacement for vinyl for PVC because polypropylene has a very similar structure where the methyl group is a similar size as the chlorine group on the polymer backbone. And so it gives it those, that same um, amorphous quality of the polymer that's very strong. And so I think that would be, I don't know how expensive it is relative to PVC, but it shouldn't be that much more expensive. It would be, not last as long, it would be my, my guess. Um, because well, I think it would last longer because you don't have those polar carbon chlorine bonds. Yeah, but but PVC is a, as a polymer, it's resistant to oxidation. Um, it so so over time, you would probably, you know, it that would be the argument is that it would last longer because it's more probably probably because it's more resistant to oxidation, but it would you know i i would say well, i personally would not worry about pvc because only because i feel fine <laughs> and i know that i've been exposed to a lot of pvc oh yeah no i don't think being exposed to pvc is the problem i think it's more concerned for the workers and also when there's fires so when pvc is burned you make chlorinated polynuclear aromatic hydrocarbons better known as dioxins so yeah you don't want to burn pvc so when houses burn down it, it's a bad thing when you have pvc pipes i have pvc pipes in this house but anyway i don't know what they're replacing it with it's a it's something to think about don't think too much <laughs> think about it yeah and and i mean i wouldn't if it ends up being pvc that's also it's a use that for which pvc is more reasonable than a lot of things that pvc is used for um you know if you use pvc to make some disposable you know if you use it to make a baby carrier that only has a you know, one baby lifespan because you're supposed to buy those things new, then you're generating something that's going to go into the skip or not get, you know, not get uh, recycled. Um, and, uh, but, but if it's something for which uh, it's going underground, it's not, you're not uh, having any likelihood of it being catching on fire because it's a groundwater pipe. Um, and it's going to have a long, long life uh, as that chemical product. That I don't have as big of a problem with. I think that's appropriate. But well, here's a summary of the differences: a comparison. PVC cooling tower fills tube settlers. Working temperature is from 35 to 65 degrees. 
polypropylene cooling tower fills tube settlers working temperature is up to 80 degrees. Hmm. And that's for what application? Uh, cooling towers. Hmm. So I don't know. I, I, I just think it's something that they should be thinking about now rather than, you know. Yeah. Just ramping up production of PVC pipes, we should talk about it. We should think about whether polypropylene or PVC is better. This is just a company website um, that makes both types of um, cooling tower pipe, not pipes. They're tower fills, fills tubes, settlers. Let's move on. Do you have anything, any, you want to just summarize what you've said about um, just to say a few things. So, so to to mention about the the loopholes that they closed because we didn't really talk about the loopholes. I think that you know if if the if it's the water treatment plant that's on the hook for the for the levels of lead, uh, they used to be able to retest and kind of test their way out of right with high flow rate. So the way to get a good accurate reading of the lead in the service lines is it has to uh, be water that has sat in those service lines for, I think, eight hours or so. Then you need to flush the, the pipes enough that the new rule is, the, it's something called, I think, the fifth liter rule, uh, that you need to, to flush more than four liters of water um, before you sample, and that that then ensures that you're getting water from the service lines and not from water that has been sitting in the pipes of the house. That means you're going to get a concentration that reflects water from the wastewater facility. Uh, so, so they don't let you flood pre-flush anymore um, where you get the water out that's been standing. It needs to sit in the lines for that long. You need to flush enough water that you are getting water from the service lines. And th these are lines that connect the house to the main lines that run through. That's the lead service line. Or that's, that's, it's, it's that intermediate, you know, the country road in between. That's the problem. Th those are the lead pipes. So you need to uh, also not take the aerator off of the faucet. Right. Because the aerator right. somewhere that um, that those crumbles the the scale of those salts those lead salts that would form on the inside of the pipe, if pieces of those salts break off, then they all collect at this filter right at the right at your faucet, and so they can't take that off. They have to leave that on there. You're supposed to clean that every so often, by the way. Um, and if you're in a rental facility, you should check and make sure that that aerator is there because sometimes renters take it off um, and use it as a pipe screen. Um, <laughs> well, my, that's what my landlord told me. Um, uh oh, okay. Yeah, so those were a few. So no, no pre-flushing. Uh, you have to flush in enough water to get uh, representative water from the service authority and no removing of the aerators. Those are just some examples of some loopholes that they, that they closed. Right. 
and then they they decrease the replacement rate from seven percent every year to three percent every year but by closing the the loopholes they think they're going to get better compliance right and that's for community water systems that test and find that over 10 percent of their of their water right has the problem of going above the above 15. that's something that i'm a little concerned about whether so 10 ppb is the acceptable limit but if it, I, I think if 10 percent of your uh if you're a water provider and 10 percent of your pipes are showing over 15 ppb then you have to implement a program whereby you are replacing at least but by the way they have concluded that there is no safe level of lead that you are going to have neurological effects especially on children yes at any level so there's no safe level we need to get the lead out of the pipes period however we get it done faster the better but let's think about what we're replacing it with and not just assume that you know I don't know. We just we just need to think about our replacement. I, I was just going to say. I was just going to remind you. You know, uh, risk is hazard times exposure. Yeah. So it's not that we aren't being exposed to lead as adults. Uh, it's that the same level of exposure. There's a greater hazard for children. Yeah. Eliminate the hazard, not the risk. Yeah. So a lot of these remediation, like the anti-corrosion treatment of the water to try to you know keep the lead on on the pipes inside the pipes and not in the water that that's trying to decrease the risk from the lead but if we don't use lead in the pipes at all the anti-corrosion is to eliminate the exposure to the hazard and but if you eliminate the hazard itself, then there's no risk. So I, I love that risk is a function of hazard and exposure. Right. So that's a Paulinastis and John Warner first came up with that when they talked about the 12 principles of green chemistry. So speaking of eliminating lead from a use, um, one of the places where lead was still permitted besides the abgas is as a primer for car paint. So cars are made out of iron, not steel, not stainless steel, although there are some fancy cars made out of stainless steel, but iron corrodes, it rusts. I'm, I've had plenty of cars who, that have gotten rusted and what they do is they create a layer of something that is oxidized, but not crumbly like rust, like iron oxides. So iron oxides are crumbly. They don't, they don't retain their structure. And it's iron three. So it get you know, when you take metallic iron, and you oxidize it, it, it becomes rust. 
So what you want to do is prevent it from rusting. And what they used to use was lead because lead could be oxidized instead of oxidizing the iron and the lead oxide would form this sort of thin film that would then take the paint and it would be act as an anti-corrosive. And they couldn't find a substitute that was as cheap as lead. And in 2001, PPG Industries won a Presidential Green Chemistry Challenge Award for developing a primer with the element yttrium, and it's Y is the element symbol, as a substitute for lead. And they electrocoat the, the car body, you know, the, the iron with yttrium, and it gives yttrium trihydroxide. And it turns out that then when they bake that, it forms a, a ceramic, a really hard resistant coating, and it can be very thin. And then they can paint it and it protects against um, oxidation. And the other cool thing about using yttrium is that when they use lead as the primer, there's, they needed to use a pretreatment with chromium and nickel, and chromium is really toxic. So you were using chromium and lead on all these millions of cars. So the other advantages that yttrium has, you don't need that chromium and nickel pretreatment anymore. You just make yttrium oxide, which is Y2O3. That's the ceramic after they bake it. It's much less toxic than lead oxide or lead. You know, we've been talking about how toxic lead is. Yttrium is, is also more earth abundant than lead. So in terms of earth abundance in the earth's crust, yttrium is 33 milligrams per kilogram and lead is 14 milligrams per kilogram. So it's about twice as abundant. And then geopolitically, it's, it's very evenly distributed, widely distributed yttrium is widely distributed across the planet. So you don't have those geopolitical factors like when we're talking about batteries and cobalt being a problem because it was mainly found in the Republic of Congo in Africa, which has been in geopolitical turmoil for a long time. Another advantage of yttrium is that the reduction potential is more favorable than lead. Now, what does this mean? It, it, all it means is it takes less energy to plate it out on the iron than it takes to plate out the lead on, on the iron. So it's, it's about a twofold advantage. It's a twofold improvement in earth abundance. It's a twofold advantage in terms of the reduction potential. Not only that, yttrium is, I think it's in the first transition metal row. Uh, let me get my periodic table here. No, it's in the second transition metal row. And it's very lightweight compared to lead. So it, it, this is, this is interesting to think about. 
just that yttrium coating decreases the weight of the car by several kilograms. Mm -hmm. So that makes it possible for it to be more fuel efficient. So we have these four things, you know, that make yttrium so promising. And I believe because of this PPG Industries primer, they were finally able to just say no more lead in car paint in about 2005. And so I think most cars that are newer than that, my son still has a 2001. He has a 2001 Corolla. So probably probably has lead paint. Yeah, that's the problem with those cars. They last forever. (laughs) Well, it's a problem, but you know, it's also in terms of the energy that a car uses in its lifetime, 50% of the energy goes into the manufacture of a car. So the longer you can drive a car, the less energy, you know, but it's a trade-off with more, more fuel efficient cars or electric cars for that matter. Okay, but we're now off track. That's the power of green chemistry is. I also just want to say, you know, kind of putting it in context, uh, you know, something that that car paint and, you know, the lead pipes where those two meet is this idea that metals in an oxygenated environment are going to create uh, that the, they're going to have electrons taken away from them and create these oxides. I, th- I think I said lead hydroxide, but there's a you know equilibrium between lead hydroxide and lead oxide. Right. So this is just something to know. If you have a piece of metal, you know, if you have a copper penny and it sits, does it stay copper forever? No, it turns blue over time. It oxidizes over time. You know that this happens to metals in your life. It happens to the metals that your car is made out of. They used to use lead. Uh, now they've found a, you know, it's basic. the lead was being used as a sacrificial oxidant, you know, to put it on top of the iron because it's bad for the iron uh, to, uh, and they used lead because, well, we could have a whole podcast or it's kind of a thread, uh, you know, uh, the chemistry that we use is the chemistry we inherited. And there's, you know, a rich history of society using lead. Why? Because lead is easy to obtain from ore and it's related to that low melting point. So, you know, we're moving. And it's malleable. It's easy to form into different shapes. So taking what we've, the chemistry we've inherited and, you know, constantly improving on that. So I'm going to wrap it up. So we talked about lead in gasoline and that I didn't mention it, but alkyl leads as opposed to lead oxide are volatile and, you know, you breathe it in, which goes into your bloodstream really quickly, goes into your neurological system really quickly. So that was really terrible. And then we came up with a green solution, which was the replacement of tetraethyl lead with ethanol. Very green replacement, um, anti-knock ingredient. And so that was a good thing. And we talked about, I believe MTBE in between there, but we didn't talk about that. Well, MTBE, yeah, we didn't talk about that because that had toxicity and it ended up in our water system and it was bad. 
that's good enough. <laughs> MTBE was bad. And ethanol was the ultimate replacement. And it's a, it's a good thing. But ultimately, we want to do away with gasoline entirely. So we'll get to that. And then we talked about lead in pipes and the new EPA rules, um, trying to replace the pipes at a faster rate, because if we don't use lead in pipes, then we'll be okay um, with our drinking water, at least from the lead point of view. Um, there's lots of other hazards that we have to worry about with drinking water. Emphasize that it's a big job and it's not going to get done immediately. No, It's a big job and we have to, you know, be patient and we do have to have intermediate steps of using anti-corrosion properly instead of like, don't use it because you're in Flint, Michigan and you can't afford to. You can't afford not to. Got to take care of your people. And let's see, then we talked about yttrium as a replacement for lead-based car paint primer. And so we're, we're getting there. It's just, you know, like Jamie said, we've inherited this chemistry and it all, there was good reasons for it when they did it in the first place, but we, we know a lot more now. And we understand how these things work. And I also want to put in a, a plug for the precautionary principle. Again, I think we talked about this with flame retardants. We don't want to just use a substitute because it's the cheapest substitute we can come up with. We need to think ahead. What problems could this cause? I think we can use polypropylene instead of polyvinyl chloride as pipes. And I hope that the people who are doing these replacements are, are thinking about this as well. Or maybe they'll, somebody will listen to our podcast and, and think about it. Well, it people who listen to our podcast uh, feel in touch enough with their uh, local water authorities that they could call them up and find out, uh, you know, how they are planning to implement it um, because these are- I think I will do that in Blacksburg because I actually have worked on water and I've been to the water treatment plant mm -hmm. and toured it. And the engineer that runs it is a good guy. He's trying to do the best job he can, but he's got to work with the town of Blacksburg and the town of Christiansburg and Virginia Tech, which is the, the gorilla. <laughs> of the three. This has been another twist. This Week in Sustainability, my co-host is Jamie Ferguson from Emory and Henry College in Southwest Virginia. It's been a delight to talk to you, Jamie. My name is Felicia Etzcorn, and I'm at Virginia Tech. I record, edit, and post these podcasts. And I'd like to thank you for listening and hope you'll subscribe and hit the like button or, or rate, rate our podcast. We're not getting any ratings. I know people are listening. I'm getting some feedback on that. So thank you for listening and have a better 2021 than 2020. <laughs> yeah, that sums it up.
everybody have a wonderful New Year's and uh, we'll see you in it to talk more sustainable chemistry. So signing off, just want to remind you to think about things. Don't think too hard, but think about it. Good night. Good night. I've been told it's hard to run with the weight of gold. On the end, I heard it said it's just as hard with the weight.